Gospel lesson this morning is found in the last chapter of John, John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we trust you this morning to reveal deep truths of your gospel. We ask you to do so. 
We entrust ourselves to you and ask that you would teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you know that about a year ago, I took on an attempt to tackle a major kitchen renovation, which I will never do again. And every once in a while, for a few weeks prior to the beginning of that renovation, Cassie would ask me, are you sure you can handle this? Are you sure you're prepared for this? These are exceptional questions that should be asked of, uh, of, of a handyman that has never uh, renovated a kitchen. She would say, are you sure you can get it at least mostly finished and functional before our family comes into town? Because guess what? That next weekend, our family was coming into town Friday for Jack's baptism. So I took off the whole week from Saturday to Friday, I worked in our kitchen. Cassie went to Gainesville to see her brother for a few days and to see his family and spend time with them. And I had a few friends helping with the renovation. And my goal was to have by Thursday night to have the floor done, to have tile installed on the floor, have the cabinets up. I heard a laugh over there. <laughs> have the cabinets up and have the appliances in. Now I know this was ambitious. But my thought was, if Chip Gaines can do it in 45 minutes, I can do this in a week. Lo and behold, I failed miserably. Cassie got home Wednesday night. The walls were still exposed. There was still no sheetrock on the walls. There were wires hanging out of the top of our attic, just hanging there, waiting to be run into the walls. The cabinets were not installed. The floor was not down. All we had was a subfloor. It was an empty space, an empty chasm, Wednesday night. Now, and I still had two days, at minimum two days before I could install cabinets and have the appliances back in. And y'all, this moment, I was faced with my failures. I had to come, I was forced to come face to face with my failure, my failure as a carpenter and as a handyman. I had not built things the way I had planned. I, had, I wasn't prepared for what, what was to ensue. I, wasn't, I hadn't planned uh, on all of the possible things and obstacles that would come against me. You know, I had failed. I had failed as a carpenter and ultimately I had failed as a husband. I had promised my wife that I would be done or at least mostly done by Friday, I had set her expectations and I had failed her. And y'all, we all fail like this on a regular basis. We fail like this to one degree or another. Just like Peter in John 13, in a fit of certainty and self-confidence, we make promises and we fail to live up to those promises. You see, in John 13, if you were to look back Jesus predicts Peter's denial and Peter says to him, no, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. In Luke's gospel, he actually says, I'm ready to go to, to follow you to prison and to death. He makes a promise and he fails to live up to that. And in the face of a servant girl, he says, no, I don't know him. I'm not one of his disciples. He denies him three times and fails miserably. And y'all, we all fail. We all fail Jesus, we all fail our families. And so how do you respond to your failures? One way is 
to sink into despair, to walk around in hopelessness. This is what happened to Judas. He had betrayed Jesus and he ends up ending his own life. Or we can lie. When we are confronted with our failure, we can lie and try to cover over our sins and act as if nothing had ever happened. Or if you're like me, you can minimize. You act as if it's not as bad as it really is. And so when your wife comes and sees the empty chasm in your kitchen, you say, no, this is exactly where I want it. This, it's not as bad as it looks. I'm prepared for this. Or you can be honest. You can be honest and can return to those whom you failed. You can return to your savior and you can experience his forgiveness. Because y'all, the major difference between Peter and Judas in the gospel of John is that Peter returned and Judas despaired. They both denied him. They both betrayed him on the same night. They both sought to save their own lives in their savior's hour of need but one returned. So the question of this passage then is how does Jesus deal with your failure? Because what we see is in the restoration of Peter, we get a pattern. We learn a pattern for how our risen savior Jesus deals with our fickle faith. We learn a pattern of how Jesus addresses our failures. And the first thing that we see is that Jesus confronts our failures. Take a look at verse nine. This verse sets the stage for, for Peter's restoration. So they realize, oh wait, it's Jesus. He's on the shore and we're out in the boat. It's Jesus and so Peter throws himself into the water and the disciples follow him. They come ashore and when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. The whole episode occurs on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias, around a charcoal fire. And y'all, this charcoal fire is significant. It's significant that John puts it in there, that it wasn't just any old fire, it was a charcoal fire. Because the last place we saw a charcoal fire was in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas in chapter 18. If you turn back there, chapter 18, beginning in verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. See, it's around this charcoal fire that Peter denies his savior, that in the face of questions, he says, no, I don't know him. I'm not one of his disciples. And it's also around a charcoal fire that his savior will restore him. So Jesus takes him back to that place. You can imagine as he walked up and smelt, you know, when you see a charcoal fire, you know it smells. It has a particular smell. So when Peter walks up, you can imagine he smelled that charcoal fire and smelt his denial. As he's walking up to his savior sitting around a fire and by taking him back through memory and through his senses, Jesus is preparing him for, re for restoration. Jesus is confronting him, exposing the location of his denial, of his failure. And then in verses 15 through 17, Jesus asks the same question three different times. Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Three isn't a magical number. It's not as if somehow through hocus pocus, Peter is restored. It's just simply Jesus using this to correspond to the three denials. Peter was asked three times if he was a follower. He said no every, all three times. So Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? He answers in the affirmative. And with these repeated questions, Jesus is revealing Peter's failure. He's exposing them, not for the purpose of crushing him, not for the purpose of shaming him, but for the purpose of healing him, allowing him to be restored, allowing him to confess his allegiance. So he confronts his failure with these questions. There's a psychiatrist out in California named Irvin Yalom, and he performs this exercise at conferences occasionally where there's three or 400 strangers. He tells them to pair off, and he says, ask this question over and over and over to one another. What do you want? So all of these strangers are supposed to ask each other, what do you want? And after a few minutes, you, you hear the room buzzing with people's answers. Some people are laughing and joyous, and some people are weeping. And Yalom reflects on it and says this, men and women are stirred to their depths. They call out to those who are forever lost, dead or absent parents, spouses, children, and friends. I want to see you again. I want your love. I want to know you're proud of me. I want you to know I love you and how sorry I am I never told you. I want you back. I'm so lonely. So much wanting, so much longing, and so much pain. So close to the surface, only minutes deep. Destiny pain, existence pain, pain that is always there, whirring continuously just beneath the membrane of life. And y'all, with these questions, do you love me? Jesus confronts Peter's failure and he exposes the pain that lies just beneath the membrane of life. Jesus does the same thing for us. He confronts our failures, he exposes our pain, and he does so not to embarrass you. He doesn't ask you over and over, do you love me? To embarrass you, not to shame you, but to heal you. Because you can only be healed when your failure is confronted by a loving savior. You can only be healed when your sin is exposed to the light that gives life. So when he brings you back to that place, that location of failure, and you see it, and you remember it, and you smell it, and he asks you the question, do you love me? Don't resist him. He's not doing it to embarrass you. He's bringing you back to that place, to that location of failure, and he's doing it so that you may be healed and that you can move forward, restored and changed. He begins there with Peter and his other disciples. And then secondly, Jesus restores fellowship with us. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples, including Peter, and probably especially Peter, when they arrive on shore in verse 12. So Peter grabs all of the fish, the net, and he presumably drags it ashore by himself, which is an incredible feat of strength. Uh, and Jesus sits them all down, and he says to them, come and have breakfast. That's a little surprising. First time I read that, that was a little jarring. Come and have breakfast? Why breakfast? Why a meal? Why doesn't he just preach to them? Tell them what they need to be doing now that he's resurrected and give them a commission and 
so that they can move on and go tackle the earth with the gospel? Why a meal? Why breakfast? Well, in the ancient world, dining together was considered an intimate endeavor. You were associating with people. You were fellowshipping with them when you ate with them. And that's why the Pharisees and Sadducees were so indignant when Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. He was associating with them. He was having table fellowship with them. And here, Jesus is seeking to restore fellowship with his disciples, all of whom had abandoned him on, the, on his night of need. John also uses words that harken back to John 6, If you look at verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This is almost identical to to the way Jesus provides fish and bread for the 5,000. He miraculously provides bread and fish when he feeds the 5,000. It's also that passage in John 6 that Jesus tells his followers that he's the bread of life and that by feeding on him, we have life. He takes the bread and the fish, he gives it to his disciples in an intimate setting around a campfire, around a charcoal fire, sharing a meal together, having table fellowship with them. And it's by feeding with the bread of life and feeding on the bread of life by faith that Jesus restores our fellowship with him, that he restores us to relationship with him. And y'all, we restore relationship with our kids all the time. We restore fellowship with them. When Maddie Grace does something especially heinous, which is on a regular basis at this point, she's three and a half, so you can imagine. When she does something especially heinous, she gets disciplined. Uh, And most of the time at this point, we're spanking. And so when I spank her, we go through this kind of ritual pattern for how I deal with her tell her to go, to go to her room. And usually that's not to get a three and a half year old to think about what she's done. It's normally just to let me cool down for a second before I go address her issues. Uh, when I go into her room, I sit down on the floor with her. She sits in my lap and we have this little conversation back and forth about what she did wrong, why it's wrong and, what she, and why it deserves to be disciplined. And then I spank her. And when I spank her, we're done. No more disciplining. She's already received the discipline. She's received the punishment. And so I, instead of just letting her run off and go play with her brother and hit him again, uh, I look her in the eyes and I say, Maddie Grace, I love you. And I give her a big hug and I give her a kiss. I'm restoring fellowship with her in that hug and kiss by telling her I love her. By giving her a hug and a kiss, I'm restoring fellowship after she's broken the rules, after she has failed to live in line with our household. And then I get to hear her say, Daddy, I love you too. No, we're restoring fellowship. And that's what Jesus does for us. And I do this for her because she needs to know this is how Jesus deals with her failures. I'm not saying I do it perfectly, clearly. But this is how Jesus deals with her. And this is how Jesus deals with us. He he confronts our sin and he restores fellowship with you. Because your fellowship with him is not contingent on your failure. He has covered those failures with his blood. And he seeks to restore fellowship with you. And then lastly, Jesus recommissions us to follow him. Look at verses 15 through 19. When Jesus questions Peter, 
He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And every time Peter answers with the affirmative. And it's not like an arrogant affirmation anymore. Back in chapter 13, he said, I will lay down my life for you. Like this really arrogant, prideful, I can do this, I'm self-confident. But this time he says, Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. You know I love you. And Jesus responds to him by recommissioning him. He says the same command in different ways over and over. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. All versions of the same thing. All versions of the same command, take care of my people. You know, this isn't new. It's not as if Peter's receiving a new vocation, as if he's being converted for the first time or the second time and receiving a new job. It's always been Peter's job as one of Jesus's apostles and his disciples to go take care of people, to go do what Jesus has done. And so Jesus is just telling him to do the same thing that he's been doing. Go back and take care of my people. He's recommissioning Peter to take care of the church and he's also reassuring him of his identity and standing before God because it's only by being right with God as his disciple can, P- can Peter then be told to go take care of the church. So Jesus is constantly over and over reassuring him, recommissioning him. He also gives Peter the dignity of, of making good on his promise. If you notice in... Uh, In chapter 13, Jesus says, I will lay down my life for you. In verse 18, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. And John concludes, this is, he was saying this to show by what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. So Jesus gives Peter the dignity of making good on that promise. So he recommissions him. And he does that for us as well. When we return to him after our failures, he recommissions us to the calling we've had all along to follow him. He calls us to continue to live in line with our identity. He ends where he began. He calls you at the very beginning, follow me. And how does he conclude with Peter? Follow me. And even when Peter asks him a question, he says, that's not for you to know. You follow me. He just recommissions us, y'all. He just has us do the same thing that he's always been telling us to do, to follow him. So he confronts our sin, he restores our fellowship, and he recommissions us to be his followers. And I'll conclude with this. In the book, Same Kind of Different as Me, Ron Hall, one of the authors is forced to come face to face with his own failure. His marriage had grown cold. He and his wife over many years had grown callous to one another, each of them believing that the other could barely stand the sight of them. And one day Ron willingly allows himself to be seduced by another woman. And he confesses his sin to one of his friends and his friend then forces him to tell his wife. And when he confesses his Sin to his wife, Deborah, chaos breaks loose. Shoes get thrown, vases get thrown, dishes get thrown across the house. 
They spend an entire night in sleepless hostility and the whole next day in a counseling session with their pastor. But that night, Deborah does something extraordinary, something surprising. She asks to speak to the woman. And she proceeds to say this to her. This is Deborah Hall, Ron's wife. I want you to know that I don't blame you for the affair with my husband. I know that I've not been the kind of wife Ron needed and I take responsibility for that. I want you to know I forgive you and I hope you find someone who will not only truly love you, but honor you. I intend to work on being the best wife Ron could ever want and if I do my job right, you will never be hearing from my husband again. She hangs up the phone and when she hung up the phone, she looked over at her husband and she says, you and I are now going to rewrite the future history of our marriage. And y'all, with grace, that is infinitely more compassionate. Jesus looks at you and looks at me and he says, you and I, are now going to rewrite the future history of our lives together over and over and over because we fail him over and over and over. We see in Peter's restoration a pattern for how Jesus deals with our fickle faith. He confronts our failures. He doesn't gloss over sin. He doesn't minimize it. He calls a spade a spade, but he does so to bring healing, not embarrassment or shame. And it's by feeding with and feeding on the bread of life by faith that our fellowship is restored with him. And when those things have happened, he recommissions us to the same calling that, we've, that we had at the beginning, to follow him, to be his disciples. And when Ron heard his wife say those last words, he says, faster than you can say divorce court, I said yes. Y'all, that is the only proper response when we experience the restoration of Jesus is to say yes. When he asks, do you love me? The only proper response is yes, Lord. You know I love you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning we do confess we do love you. We have failed you over and over. We have failed our families and our friends over and over. But Lord, you are so gracious to receive us back, to confront us, to change us, to restore us. And so God, we give you thanks that you're not willing to leave us where we are in our sin and shame, but we give you thanks that you, can, that you address us in a gracious and compassionate way and restore us. Restore us continually, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.